Hi, I'm Roland Vibe, and I'd like to thank you for joining the podcast today. So today I'm going to talk about selling your business. It's a topic that has come up um, quite a bit for me lately in my practice, and it is a very, very complicated area. So um, admittedly, we're going to talk about it uh, at a fairly high level, but we will get into the weeds a little bit, and we'll start talking about some of the details. So it's not going to be too high level, but it, um, you know, it really is just scratching the surface of, of, of the whole issue. So when selling your business, I mean, your business can take a couple of different forms. You can, you know, you can operate a business as a sole proprietor. You can operate a business through a partnership or you can op uh, operate your business uh, through a corporation. So today we're going to talk about selling your business when you're operating through a corporation. The issues are more complicated um, and, you know, more, more people tend to operate, particularly as the business gets bigger, more people tend to operate through a corporation. So I think it is more relevant and certainly what I see more often in, in my practice. So when you, when you sell your business, there's really two ways you can do it. Sell your business through a corporation. You can either sell the shares of the corporation or you can sell the assets of the corporation. And each of those two produces, although the, the difference might seem a little subtle, they actually produce dramatically different results from, from a tax perspective. So we'll touch on, on both of them. And you know the general, general point I'm making here is as a vendor, and these are all generalizations, as a vendor, you're probably more interested in selling the shares of your company because you will get a better tax result for reasons which I will explain. The purchaser, on the other hand, um, would likely be more interested in buying the assets of the business. So you do have some competing objectives and um, there's generally not a middle ground here. So um, you end up, you know, one way or the other will depend on the relative bargaining power of the parties, I guess. Um, if the purchaser is quite keen to acquire the business, they might be more willing to accept a purchase of, of shares. Whereas if the purchaser is uh, in the driver's seat, then they may insist and in, in get a sale, a purchase of assets. So what are the differences? Well, um, and, and why, why is there a better result for the sale of shares? So the sale of shares, the, the holy grail here that we're pursuing as a vendor is the use of the lifetime capital gains deduction. Um, some people call it the capital gains exemption, capital gains deduction. So I'll, you know, I might use those terms interchangeably uh, during this discussion. What is that? Well, in the, if you were to sell the shares of a company and you meet certain criteria, we'll get into those criteria, then the first 892,218, that's 892,218. So almost $900,000 of capital gains that you receive on the sale of the shares of your business, if you qualify, will be tax-free to you. And I'm going to put an asterisk beside tax-free because it, it is tax-free, but we'll get into certain circumstances where it's not quite tax-free. So let's say round up, I know then this number, by the way, is indexed. So, you know, if you sell your business in 2022, it might in fact be $900,000. So it's always an, an amount that goes up a little bit by little bit each year. So $892,218 of capital gains in uh, is tax-free. So if you sell your business for, you start it for nothing, you pay nothing for your shares, you build it up, you sell it for a million dollars, 892,000 tax-free asterisk, and anything over and above that is treated as a capital gain. So when you look at, you know, the, the net proceeds you get as a vendor, that is, that's pretty powerful, right? To be able to receive that much money, that much money tax-free. So that's why sale of shares is far more beneficial to the seller because you get that treatment. From the buyer's perspective, it's a lot less interesting um, for the reason that um, the buyer inherits 
lots of liabilities, whether they're known or not known. So I'll give you some examples of that. So um, when you buy a company uh, as a purchaser and you know, you may in subsequent years get sued for um, non-performance of a contract or a defect. Um, you might, the company might get reassessed for HST or income tax. You might, you know, get sued for, a company might get sued for wrongful dismissal. There's any number of things that, whether known or not at the time of the purchase, that, that can come into play after the company is bought and sold. So when you buy the shares of a company as a purchaser, you have you take on all of these risks. So if something happens after you bought the company that relates to the period before you own the company, then that attaches to the shares and those liabilities become the responsibility of the new owners. So um, what that means is that there is greater risk to a buyer. Now, what we see, typically see in, in these transactions is a significant amount of due diligence that is performed, which is essentially activities of the buyer to make sure that you know th there's nothing that they are aware of that um, comes into play. So it's it's an attempt on the part of the buyer to make sure that none of these contingent liabilities that can come up um, are, are caught. They're, they're caught off guard. So we, we don't want. So they put a lot of time and effort into making sure that they, they explore all of these different areas that, that might cause problems. Um, so uh, and you know there might be uh, holdbacks in the, in the sales uh, in the person sale agreement where. You know, they agree to buy the company for a certain amount of money, but a portion of it may be deferred and held back. And part of the purpose of that holdback might be to allow them to get some comfort around these risk areas that might come up, in which case, if there are things that come up, instead of trying to chase the, uh, the, the seller for the money and go after that person uh, and try and sue them for it, you can simply hold back the, take money out of the, the holdback. So, um, but in general, you know, there is risk to a buyer as a result of, of buying shares because you, you buy everything that comes along with the company. And, you know, purely from a tax perspective, if you buy a company, um, you don't necessarily get a step up in the tax in the tax cost of the underlying assets. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you buy a company for a million dollars and, you know, that includes part of the value is, um, you know, real estate. Um, there's a building, an office building that's inherent with that. Then, you know, you, in, you, by buying the shares of the company, the price you're paying might reflect the value of the building, but the tax cost of the building is still the original tax cost to the purchaser. So if you buy the shares, includes the building, and at some point you decide you need a bigger space, so you sell that building, you have, you know, you will pay capital gains and perhaps recapture depreciation on the increased value of the building because that wasn't reflected in the purchase price. You bought the shares, but the original cost of the underlying assets are still at the original cost to the seller or the, the previous owner. So you don't get that step up in cost basis. It can lead to higher capital gains on the sale or even in the short term, less depreciation because you can't depreciate the, the cost of the assets you're buying uh, at, a, at a value that's higher than what the, the, they were exist already on the books of the company. So um, those are a couple of uh, reasons why as a buyer, you know, really want to buy shares and um, as a seller of why you absolutely want to sell shares. So let's talk about the capital gains deduction. You know, it, it's a good incentive, um, but before you start, you know, as a seller, you start negotiating hard to sell the shares. You want to make sure that you're actually um, going to get the lifetime capital gains deduction on sale. Because if you're not, then, you know, it might not be 
a lot of reason to to argue in favor of a, uh, a share sale. So, what what criteria need to get met to get this this wonderful lifetime capital gains deduction? The criteria are generally broken down into um, corporate criteria and personal criteria. So, first of all, the company that you're selling needs to be carrying on an active business primarily in Canada. Um, so, and, and these are, are fairly well-defined tax concepts. Um, so what is an active business? Well, I mean, an active business doesn't include investments. Um, so if you have a past company that is earning passive income streams from uh, prop rental properties, um, you know, having a portfolio of investments, you know, that's not going to be an active business. I think, you know, again, it's a very specific complex topic, but, you know, if you, if you go to bed tired at the end of the day from running your business, chances are you're carrying on an activist. I know that's not a tax definition, but uh, if it involves blood, sweat, and tears, you're probably carrying on an active business, but it's something that needs to be confirmed. And then the idea is that this business needs to be carried on primarily in Canada, which doesn't mean that you can't be selling into the U.S. You just, you can't be selling into the U.S. through a permanent establishment in the United States. So if you have an office here in Canada, all your, all your, one or more offices, but all of your physical locations are in Canada. You don't have warehouses in the U.S. So even though you're selling into foreign jurisdictions, you're selling into the United States, chances are you're, you're carrying on the business primarily in Canada because that's where you're physically located. But again, these are tax concepts that do need to be explored. So the company needs to be carrying on an active business primarily in Canada. Great. Um, there are certain asset tests at the at the corporate level. So we, we have this concept, and it's not you know, it's not defined in the Income Tax Act, but I'll refer to it in, in plain English as redundant assets. Are there assets on the balance sheet that don't need to be there, that are not core to the business? So if you have, um, if you have been profitable and you've had excess cash over the years and you've invested it within the company, so you've got your, your business assets, but you also have a million dollar portfolio where you've just actively been investing the proceeds of your profits, um, then, you know, you, those are not assets that are core to the business. The business can operate quite well without them. Thank you very much. So these redundant assets, and that inc can include, um, real estate. Um, if you've got, you know, you decided to take some of your profits and put it into rental properties that are not used in the business, then those are things that I would fall, that would fall into that definition or that description of, of redundant assets. So if your redundant assets at the time of sale represent more than 10% of the value of the assets on the balance sheet, then you're not going to qualify. The company's not going to qualify for the capital gains exemption. And so that's a point in time at the time of sale. And there's also another look back rule that says that's great, but over the past 24 months, these redundant assets can't represent more than 50% of the value of the assets on the balance sheet. So you have to be aware that if you do have redundant assets, that are not used in the business that, you know, having those, you know, even 24 months before the sale may put you offside. So one of the prevailing themes I'm going to get into in this discussion is that selling your business requires planning. And one of those planning areas is to make sure that the balance sheet is in fact lean and mean, and it doesn't have any of these, these non-core assets on the balance sheet because it can put you offside. So those are in general, the corporate tests, carrying on active business, primarily in Canada, and then the 90% at the time of sale, 50% in the previous 24 months, you can't have too much non-core assets. So um, that's one thing. So even if the company qualifies, 
the you still may not qualify for the capital gains deduction. So you have to look at both elements of it, corporate criteria and personal criteria. So the personal criteria basically are as follows. You have to, the company qualifies, but you have to have held your shares for a period of 24 months. So if you start up a business today um, and you're lucky enough to build it up and sell it within a year, even though the company qualifies, the balance sheet is, is fine, you're not going to get the lifetime capital gains deduction because you haven't held the shares for 24 months. Um, there are some, some relieving provisions in there. So, uh, for example, if you carried on your business through a proprietorship for many years and you decided to incorporate that, business and now you've carrying it out carrying it on through a corporation and if you sell it within two years there are some look back rules to say okay you might not have had the company the shares itself for 24 months but if the shares were you know this company was given to you or created from a sole proprietorship that you've been carrying on for many years then you can look back to the period of time that you you carried on the business through a sole proprietorship in determining whether or not you've held the shares for 24 months it's fairly limited um, application, but it, it, it is out there if, if you're concerned that you, you, know, you have not held the shares for 24 months. But in general, you need to have held the shares for 24 months subject to these, these limited uh, relieving provisions. So there's one thing. Um, and in tax, we love acronyms. There are certain things in your past tax history that may also preclude you from uh, claiming a lifetime capital gains deduction. So if you have a senile balance, CNIL, cumulative net investment loss, then you will not necessarily get full access to your lifetime capital gains deduction. What is senile? Um, senile basically means you've, over your personal tax life, you've claimed more investment expenses than you have had investment income. So that might come into play if you've had personal rental properties or you've had consistent losses over the years, or you've borrowed money and you've legitimately used that money to buy investment assets and you've written off the interest, then that can create a senile balance and it's something that you should look to to make sure that it's not going to come back and haunt you and prevent you from getting the capital gains deduction. The other, the other ac acronym uh, is ABIL, A-B-I-L, Allowable Business Investment Loss. If you claimed one of these in the past, then you know it may again prevent you from getting the lifetime capital gains deduction. So how do you know if you've got a senile or able problem? You basically need to confirm that uh, with CRA. Their records are fairly complete. And you know if you engage your advisor to uh, a tax advisor, they can relatively quickly determine for you whether or not you've got any of these senile or able issues that would claw into your capital gains deduction. So um, you know that's kind of the long and short of it. Now, you know, Lifetime capital gains deduction, eight hundred ninety-two thousand tax-free, is great. It can be even greater if you've got if you've put in some some pre-planning and you've structured things properly. Under the current state of the law, you can actually multiply that. You can get capital lifetime capital gains deduction for other family members. Um, and again, the rules are complicated. You know, one one option that you see a lot of entrepreneurs take advantage of, and it's best to do this early on. Um, is to use a family trust. A family trust um, is a separate vehicle that will own shares of your company. And if you were to, um, you know, have your spouse and children involved, so let's say, you know, two children, yourself and your spouse, um, and you, their ownership is, is part through a family trust, then in that scenario, if you sell it and everything works out well, 
it is possible that you would get four times $892,218 tax-free. So it, it's, it's a great structure to, to multiply the capital gains deduction and um, you know, it, it can work out well under the current state of the law. Now, um, you know, things have to be implemented properly and you know, it can't be done immediately prior to the sale. These are types of things that need to, the trust needs to be in place early on so that there is actually some growth in value to the shares that are held by the trust. And, and the last thing, you know, I, I did dwell on the, the presence of these redundant assets. They can be purified. That's a term that we use in the tax world, series of techniques that allow you to take these, these offending assets and uh, take them off the balance sheet immediately prior to a sale. Uh, but you have to be careful about it. There are certain, um, again, you know, you can purify at the time of sale, but if you haven't met the 50% or more uh, used in an active business over the past 24 months, then purification at the time of sale is not going to help you. Uh, and you, you also have to be aware that there are some fairly complex tax provisions that really do address the inability to remove assets from a corporation on a tax deferred basis if it's done in contemplation of a sale. So that's quite a mouthful. Um, but the point here is that purifying can be done. You can take a bad balance sheet make it a good balance sheet so that the company qualifies, the shares in the company qualify for the capital gains deduction. But you've got to be absolutely careful that you're not offending some of these provisions that prevent you from doing it in contemplation of an actual sale. So it boils down to plan, plan, plan. Make sure that, you know, if you're going to sell your business, that is an objective, that you put a structure in place early on, you stick to the plan so that you're not creating these, these offensive assets on the balance sheet that are going to come back and haunt you at the time of sale. Okay. So let's, let's talk about flip over to the sale of assets. So um, I've talked about how they're not as good for the seller. They're better for the buyer. That's absolutely true. The buyer, like I said, will uh, get up to buy assets. The assets are now written up to their fair value at the time of the purchase so that you can, you can depreciate them. You can get a higher write-off every year and if you were to sell them, you're not going to have the same capital gain as if you bought the shares and have the original cost of those assets. There's certainly less due diligence involved. If you're buying assets of a company, you don't necessarily have to worry about, um, you know, a tax reassessment, for example. If, if, if you buy assets and the person, your party you're buying them from hasn't filed their taxes properly, that's not your problem as a, as a purchaser of just the assets. So it is inherently easier. There is less due diligence. I'm not saying there's no due diligence, but there's less due diligence that you do uh, on the part of, of a buyer if you're buying assets. Um, from a seller's perspective, you know, the, you sell the assets, you have capital gains on the assets that are not subject to exemption. Um, presumably, um, the buyer is paying you more for your assets than what you paid for them. That's the goal here. So you're going to have recapture of any depreciation you've had. You're going to have some capital gains, particularly if they're, a lot of what they're buying is intangibles like goodwill, um, trademarks, just general business intangibles. These are all going to create tax in the corporation. And then there's going to be a second level of tax that is triggered once these proceeds go into the corporation and you pull it out as the vendor, um, you pull it out because you want to get the money in your own genes, then there's going to be that second level of tax. So that's why the tax consequences of selling assets are far well, I'm not going to say they're far more onerous. They're just less good than if you were to sell sell the shares. And that's something 
know, as, as advisors, we can do for you. We can say, okay, if you sell the shares of the company, here's what you're going to get. If you sell the assets of the company and take the money out and put it in your pockets where you're on equal footing, this is what you're going to get. We can compare those apples to oranges scenario and you can see uh, exactly what you're losing out on if you decide you're going to uh, accede to the, the uh, purchaser's wishes and sell the assets. So that, that can definitely be done. The, the purchase and sale agreement. So if you were to buy assets, there is going to be an agreement that covers that. If you buy, if you, or if you sell shares rather, um, there's going to be an agreement that covers that sale. The, the nature of the agreement is it's far more difficult to negotiate a share sale. So you're going to have a lot more professional fees on a share sale than you would on an asset sale. The professional fees are going to be incurred because there's going to be a lot of haggling over what we call representations and warranties or reps and warranties. So for example, um, your, your advisory team as a seller of shares is going to want to make sure that the exposure you have for events after the fact are minimized as much as possible. The amount of holdback is going to be minimized as much as possible. Whereas the lawyers representing the purchasers are going to want to make sure that their clients are uh, well protected. And if anything comes up after the fact relates to the period of ownership that you had, that they are protected. So negotiating a share purchase agreement, um, notwithstanding the fact that the share sale will get you more proceeds, negotiating the share purchase agreement is going to get you uh, it's going to cost you a lot more and it's going to be a lot more trying and a lot more painful um, than something equivalent on the, on the sale of, of, of assets. So that's something to be, to be aware of. And I think a lot of business owners, particularly if the sale price is fairly significant, a lot of business owners are actually caught off guard with how difficult this is. You often come to a handshake agreement with the purchaser, CEO to CEO, and everything seems fine. And then when you get the advisory team in there, whose sole goal is to represent their client's best interest, a lot of times it gets off the rails. So I guess, I guess the theme is I've never been involved in a deal that went, near, uh, went as smoothly as anybody ever thought it would, certainly not the, the CEO to CEO dialogue, because when, when we start getting into the nitty gritty and, and negotiating all aspects of the agreement, particularly those reps and warranties, it does come off the rails. Another area where, again, if this is relevant to a share sale, where it can come off the rails, is this concept of working capital. So working capital uh, is basically the amount of assets that are retained in the business. And I'm, I'm simplifying things here, but the amount of assets that are retained in the business that are needed, that you need to keep the lights on and keep things operating. So working capital, the definition is most often cash, well, current assets minus current liabilities. So cash and accounts receivable, maybe prepaid expenses, minus all short-term liabilities of the company. And that's really what your working capital is. So why is that important? Well, most every, I mean, every share purchase agreement will have to address it. So if you are selling your business for a million dollars and there is $400,000 of cash in the business that is not necessarily needed for it, or, um, you know, is, is good to have, but not required, then you're essentially, if you're leaving that behind, then the buyer's really only paying 600K for that company. So negotiating what is a normal working capital requirement is very key because what happens then, if you agree that you only need, let's say between cash receivables minus payables, you only, and I'm picking a number here, you only need $100,000 of working capital, 
And if there is $300,000 of working capital in the company at the time, then you know, the purchase price is a million dollars plus that adjusted amount. So you get 1.2 million for your sale. It's a hugely contentious, contentious issue. Uh, sometimes we see agreements on a, you know, whatever cash is in there, working capital is zero, anything over and above that is paid to the seller. That's great, but that, that happens from time to time, but it's not commonplace. So because there will be some fundamental agreements and because disagreements, and because it, it does affect how much you get to keep in your pocket, uh, I think that the issue of what is the required working capital is a very key, uh, a very key issue. It can cause deals to come off the rails and it needs to be addressed very early on in the process so that there's no, you don't get all the way through this. You've invested all kinds of time and energy negotiating your share sale and you kind of get bogged down and uh, at the last minute on what is working capital. So, in, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's key to get that addressed up front, not only just the definition of working capital, but what is it going to be? What is the buyer going to expect to be left behind? Um, costs, particularly if uh, if you get into these protracted negotiations and if you have to do any pre-sale restructuring to get the balance sheet to where it needs to be, um, can be higher than than most people would uh, would would think would would apply. Um, a lot of times we get uh, get into deferred payouts um, where you know there's a holdback for some amount um, to you know sometimes it's only ninety days sometimes it's it's more than a year. These are all things that are negotiated and need to be addressed up front because if you're expecting to get 100% of your money up front, then that's generally not going to happen in, in some of these transactions. You might, you, you know, the best you could probably get is a holdback that is released after 90 days. And a lot of times these holdbacks are released far after that. So expectations are key to manage um, because a lot of times you just might not know, um, you know, what some of these things that come up, they, they may surprise you. Um, you might think you're getting a great deal for your company, and you are, but if there is deferred payouts, that is something that you need to be aware of and may happen. Um, I talked about the, the lifetime capital gains deduction, the 892000 and how it is tax-free, and I talked about putting an asterisk beside that. There is this idea of a um, concept called AMT, or alternative minimum tax. AMT will apply in situations where the there are large large discretionary deductions. And we see that very often in a share sale. So when you sell your business for a million dollars and you qualify for the lifetime capital gains deduction, you report the capital gain on your tax return. And then you take a deduction off of it. So it goes on your return and it comes off and it reduces by the time you reach the calculation of your taxable income, it reflects only the amount over and above the, uh, the 892000 So if you sold your company for half a million dollars and it qualified, you'd report the gain, you'd claim a deduction, and you might have taxable income of zero. So although you have no taxable income, those are circumstances where this AMP, the secondary calculation, comes into play, and it may actually create tax for you. This AMT is, is not based on, on taxable income. It's based on other criteria. And for someone with that uses their full lifetime capital gains deduction, the full eight hundred ninety-two thousand, and has no other source of income, then the AMT in it cost in a particular year on this transaction might be uh, upwards of about forty-four or forty-five thousand dollars. So, although it's tax-free, AMT may apply, and that we see that often if you've used a trust 
and you've put shares um, or you put some of the capital gains deduction in the hands of your children who might be in university and might not have other income or your spouse where he or she may not have a lot of, uh, of their own income. So the capital gains deduction relative to their other sources, which may be zero, um, can create AMT. Now the good news about AMT is that although it's, you know, it can be good news about paying $45,000 when you thought you were gonna pay nothing, the good news is that AMT is a recoverable tax. It's essentially a prepayment of your tax that you can recover over the next seven years. So if you do have children in university, they use the full exemption, they are subject to AMT, that is probably not going to be a long-term problem. Once they graduate and get jobs, the AMT starts to reduce their future tax liability. So you do get a chance to get it back in most cases. Um, you know, that's, so, so there we go. I mean, you know, this, again, a lot of complex topics in here. I think some, some general themes, if you're going to sell your business, um, you, you know, you need to focus on whether it's going to be a share sale or an asset sale. At the time you start your business, you never know how that's going to go. So you need to provide for, you know, to make sure that you do set yourself up if it ends up being a share sale, that you do provide yourself with the opportunity to use your lifetime capital gains deduction. And that involves setting up the right structure in the beginning. It requires a continuous review of your structure so that you're not building up these redundant assets and essentially just plan, plan, plan. If you, you know, I know there's a lot of things to take care of when you're running a business and, you know, these long-term exit strategies may, uh, may not be top of mind at the time when you're struggling to, uh, with the day-to-day -day operations, but they certainly are something that you should focus on. And you can never start the process of examining your, your company for a sale too soon. This, the, the more lead time you have as an advisor, the easier it is so that we can do those purifications. We can make sure the right structures are in place. And if the opportunity presents itself to make sure that we have the ability to multiply that lifetime capital gains deduction. So there you go, a hideously complex topic. We could probably talk, you know, another couple of hours on this, um, but you know, that's just essentially scratching the surface. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.